0: Ballet is an elegant, gorgeous art form that requires poise, practice, and patience. However, beneath its beautiful surface, there's supposedly a toxic frat-like industry that preys upon ballerinas. Anyone in the art world knows that competition is fierce and speaking out can lead to consequences. We've talked about that with the film industry before. Today, let's get into the abuse as well as the ugly side of the ballet industry. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the ballet industry. Please be advised that today's episode will discuss eating disorders and sexual abuse. So if you're not in the right space to hear about that, then we'll just see you in the next episode. For those of you sticking around, let's get into it. Though our main focus today will be some of the more recent allegations surrounding the ballet industry, I want to give you just a little bit of background into how ballet dancers are treated and seen by the public in the 19th century. The mistreatment within ballet stems back further than this, but if we went back to when ballet was founded, we would be here all day. Anyway, not only was ballet rife with sexual exploitation in the 19th century, but backstage in the opera houses, it was in many ways what we might think of as a strip club. During the 1800s, women typically wore lots of layers and clothing, whereas ballet dancers wore relatively skimpy and revealing outfits. The wealthy male subscribers of the Paris Opera treated the backstage as a men's club, where they met and made business deals with other power brokers. And this environment was considered a highly sexualized atmosphere. Even Count Charles Albert Monet described the dance foyer as a kind of meat market, which is really gross. For dancers, this meant they were expected to submit to the attentions and affections of subscribers as many of the men and noblemen and important financiers whose money underwrote the majority of the opera's operations. Some sources state that as a result of this, dancers were essentially forced into sex work, leading double lives as courtesans, oftentimes with their own mothers acting as their agents. History of Yesterday writes, it was generally seen as no self-respecting ballerina had fewer than three lovers at one time one for prestige, one for money, and one for love. Even if a ballerina did become famous on her own accord, she was still suspected of being a sex worker as it was such a grim reality of the time. For many girls in poverty during this era, working extremely hard and going through rigorous training to become a ballerina was their only escape. There weren't exactly many options for these ladies. However, not only did the Paris Opera Ballet let the sexual exploitation happen to vulnerable young women, but they encouraged it. Given this, there was a large focus on girls and women's bodies and appearance, arguably just as much as there was talent. Considering this history, perhaps it's no surprise then that body shaming is also incredibly normalized within the ballet industry today. According to Stairway for Ballet, from the time ballet dancers are young, they're met with harsh criticisms about their bodies, leading dancers to believe that this is inevitable and normal. Ballet has evolved over the years, certainly since the 19th century, but that doesn't mean there's no toxic culture backstage. Ellie Hunt, a dancer for over 15 years, said that ballet is fixated on controlling women's bodies in an article for Varsity. She writes how some professional ballet academies encourage a culture of sacrifice contributing to the history of eating disorders within the ballet industry. Leading ballet companies do combat this by investing in physiotherapy staff and other resources to ensure that their dancers are healthy, but the culture of sacrifice remains. The stereotype of only thin women being ballerinas has led to directors, choreographers, and audiences all expecting exactly that from the ballerinas they watch on stage. Dance Magazine has called it a cult of thin and remarks that professional ballet dancers are selected at a young age for advanced training because of their physique, implying that if you don't fit the mold, you'll never even have a chance. Yet even women that are slender can be made to feel that they're not good enough. One dancer at a prominent company said that, in shape for us as being hungry, eat nothing and see how far you can go. Directors also have what Dance Magazine calls fat chats routinely to tell dancers how to slim down. Some directors are aware of this and have spoken out, such as former Royal Ballet Artistic Director, Monica Mason, who stated that any director of a company who said they have never had an anorexic dancer would have to have been lying. One former ballet dancer, Sarah Burrows says at the school she attended, there would be regular weigh-ins before students were called in to see the director and told how much weight they needed to lose. Some girls might faint from hunger, crash diet on watermelons and chewing gum, and be congratulated when they did lose weight from medical conditions like gastroenteritis. This seemingly sent the message that their health was less important than their size. And this was all the way in New Zealand. While beauty standards may differ from country to country or place to place, I find it interesting that this image of a ballerina needing to be a specific slim size permeates culture. Dance Magazine says that the ultra thin look seems to have originated with George Balanchine, one of the most influential choreographers of the 20th century and the co-founder of the New York City Ballet. However, as society has become more accepting of different body types and sizes within other industries, even modeling, the drastic, extremely thin standard in ballet is still the norm. One prima ballerina confessed she would eat only one apple and one bowl of porridge per day to maintain her physique. Obviously, this kind of diet and mindset can have dire consequences. Heidi Gunther, a young dancer with the Boston Ballet, passed away from anorexia in 1997. LA Times released an article that said the events hinted at a cult of secrecy, implying that it was, in fact, the way ballerinas are seen that pushed Heidi to starvation. Balanchine himself would often tell his dancers, I want to see Bone, and Anna Marie Holmes, the director of the Boston Ballet, even admitted to telling Gunther to lose weight. Aesthetically, we thought she could be a little thinner, she told the LA Times, discussing a time when Gunther joined the ballet. And my opinion in this is that the fact that she says it's about aesthetics and not at all with talent speaks volumes to me. If someone's a fantastic dancer, who cares about the size that they are? As long as they can do what you're asking and be a graceful ballerina, they should be allowed to have a damn stomach. I don't know how many jobs can tell you to starve yourself. And it's disgusting that ballet can do this without anyone batting an eye. And this is considered normal. I'm sure that many of you might even be surprised. Why am I covering the ballet industry? This is how normalized this is. is, People are probably going to be a little shocked that I'm covering this. Like, why is this so dramatic? This is a huge problem. The LA Times continued speaking with Bruce Marks, the ballet's artistic director, Emeritus, who likened the girl's eating disorders to drug use. There's a lot of denial. We don't know there's a drug issue until someone overdoses, he explained. These ballet dancers' emotional and physical well being is at stake. Marks said it's not as if they can go to a ballerina's home and look in her refrigerator to see if she's eating well but they can hire nutritionists and doctors to at least give the girls an exam to make sure they're not unhealthy. Schools can stop calling their dancers fat, giving fat checks and things of that nature. It's not as if they're helpless to combat these eating disorders. And if anything, they seem to be complicit in how they handle them. While some ballet companies do seem open to change, creating health and well-being programs, others have been more reluctant. And unfortunately, when some schools do seem to gear the conversation towards being fit, it feels as if this is merely a code word for losing weight and health still is not the priority. It isn't just the dangers of being too thin and controlling women's bodies that remain an issue in the modern ballet industry, but sexual abuse too. And before we continue on throughout the rest of the episode, I wanna place today's sponsors here. And then if you're continuing on afterwards, just know it's going to get a little bit more grim. If you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, provide for yourself, don't deprive yourself. With Dipsy, you can focus on giving yourself pleasure, a habit you'll wanna keep all year. Dipsy Stories is an app full of sexy audio stories, and now they also have written stories. No matter what you're into or what turns you on, Dipsy helps bring the stories to life, anytime, anywhere. Close your eyes and let yourself get lost in a world where only good things happen and pleasure is the only priority. Explore your fantasies in a safe, shame-free way. Dipsy has hundreds of stories to choose from and they release new content every week, so there's always more to explore. Plus, they even have wellness sessions to help you wind down and sleep sessions to help you drift off to sleep. The visual component of sexy time things doesn't really do it for me, but the audio portion most certainly does. And this is a new, exciting app that is, although a little odd maybe to have for a sponsor, I'm really excited for because I think it's something that everyone can use and should be accessible. Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com casket. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com casket, dipsystories.com casket. We've all got tons on our to-do lists. So one thing to get done faster is order dinner from DoorDash, or lunch, or groceries, or household essentials. DoorDash is flexible and they'll deliver it all right to your door. DoorDash has over 300,000 partners, so you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Popeye's, Chipotle, and Cheesecake Factory, and ordering is easy. Your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. So recently I was making a dinner with HelloFresh meals and I accidentally dropped the protein on the floor like a fool. And because of course I did not sweep that day, I didn't wanna eat the meat off the ground anymore. So I simply had DoorDash order me another piece of that protein and it came right to the door within 30 minutes so I could keep cooking. And for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code casket. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code CASKET. Don't forget that's code CASKET for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. In January, 2018, Peter Martins, the leader of the New York City Ballet, retired amidst a slew of sexual harassment and physical and verbal abuse allegations. He denied any misconduct and claimed that he retired to bring an end to the disruption that the allegations caused, but the abuse wasn't just severe, but dated back decades, according to the New York Times. And they should know, considering that they also wrote an article about how Martins was charged for beating his own wife back in 1992. Back then, the event was described as shocking, but a member of the School of American Ballet Board, Peter Wolf, said that the assault charge was a personal matter that would not affect Peter Martin's career. And personally here, a dispute between husband and wife, like a divorce over personal differences, that's one type of matter and that shouldn't affect a career. But assault charges, especially when you're in this type of industry, the ballet industry, I don't know. It just seems like it kind of might overlap a little bit. And by the way, it wasn't just that like, he got charged with it and had to do some community service. He went to jail for it. It was only for several hours, which is ridiculous, but he did go to jail for assaulting someone. And that should at least launch an investigation internally into your company. Do you want someone who went to jail for assaulting their wife and then surround them by ballerinas? Like, I don't think so. Darcy Kissler, his wife, and a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet, claimed that she wanted to discuss a problem in their relationship when it happened, but Martins didn't. She persisted, and Martins responded by pushing her, slapping her, and hitting her, despite Kissler saying she asked him to stop. Kissler cut her ankle. Martins was charged with third-degree assault, though, given what happened next, this seemed to be a warning of what was to come. According to Jeffrey Edwards, a soloist with the New York City Ballet at the time, he accused Peter Martins of verbal and physical abuse just a year later in 1993, and brought a complaint to the general manager, company manager, and dancers union. Through the union, the American Guild of Musical Artists, they confirmed that they received the complaint, though nothing really happened. Edwards left only for more dancers to follow in his footsteps. Victor Ostrovsky was only 12 years old at the time and said that Martins had grabbed him in a death lock by the back of his neck. Ostrovsky said, quote, He's yanking me around to the left and to the right. He's digging his left thumb and his middle finger. I felt like he was piercing my muscle. I started crying and sobbing profusely. I was embarrassed. He assaulted me on stage in front of the whole cast. He ended up dropping out of the School of American Ballet afterwards. And he and Edwards stepped forward to tell the New York Times their stories years later in 2017 and other dancers joined them. John Clever recalled that Martins had slammed his fists into a wall about an inch from his head when he'd been teaching a class in 1987, and he'd witnessed Martins become violent with a former romantic partner, dancer, Heather Watts. I saw him pick her up and slam her into a cement wall, Clifford, now founding artistic director of Los Angeles Dance Theater stated. Gilsey Kirkland's 1986 book, Dancing on My Grave, tells a similar story of when Martins allegedly dragged Watts up and down a flight of stairs. Another accuser, Kelly Boll says she'd been scanning a casting list on a wall backstage at the David H. Koch Theater in 1989 when Martins grabbed her. She claims he quote, pulled me out into the hallway, shaking me by the shoulders, screaming at me. You fucking bitch, why can't you listen to what I have to say? I need to break your spirit. He had his hands around my neck, choking me and screaming at me, and then he pushed me away and left, end quote. Though she told her friends, Bull says she felt powerless as there was no HR, no protection and nowhere to go. An anonymous letter was also sent out in 2017, accusing Martins of sexual assault. The New York City Ballet and School of American Ballet began investigating. However, their protection for students seemed fairly minimal at best. For example, it actually had been brought up prior to these dancers stepping forward that there should be some kind of abuse clause within contracts. However, it was voted down because according to the principal ballet master at the National Ballet of Canada, our opinion was we were already protected by ordinary law, not to mention human decency. Unfortunately, these dancers were very clearly not protected and began calling for Martin's dismissal. Some claimed that he would also sleep with dancers and subsequently give them better rules for doing so. This prompted comparisons of Martin's to that of the president of the Lincoln Center, Jed Bernstein, who had also suddenly resigned in 2016 after it was revealed that he had intimate relationships with employees without disclosing them, telling off-color jokes, addressing female employees as sweetie or honey, and things of that nature. And one of the employees he had a relationship with had also been recently promoted. So it was just very odd and convenient timing for a lot of those things too. If Bernstein had to resign for violating policies about senior management dating subordinates and his shady actions, then why shouldn't Martin's resign for his? Others like former dancer, Wilhelmina Frankfurt pointed out that Martin's behavior was the norm. His predecessor, Mr. Balanchine, also known as Mr. B, was famous for discouraging female dancers from marriage and having children, insisting that their boyfriends leave them at the stage door and that dancers wear different perfumes so he could easily identify them. Wilhelmina wrote in 2012 that, quote, "'The only way that Peter Martin's rivaled Mr. B was as a Casanova. However, where Mr. B was charm incarnate, Peter was a basher.'" She also described an incident where mid-performance, Martin pulled her into his dressing room and had exposed himself to her. She ran back onto the stage for the finale, but she, like those that came before her, felt helpless as the company had no HR department and nowhere to turn to. Nevertheless, Martins retired in January, 2018, just a few days after he was arrested for drunken driving, another despicable act in of itself. And of course, he continued to deny all the allegations against him. The New York City Ballet and the School of American Ballet also reached their end of their investigation and said that it did not corroborate the allegations of harassment or violence, both made in the anonymous letter and reported in the media. Yet as their report was never published, we don't know how this judgment was reached. Jonathan Stafford has since replaced him and hopefully as of early 2018, dancers in the New York City Ballet and SAB can breathe easier, yes? Well, not exactly. A year after Peter Martins retired in shame, the New York Times released an article stating that Martins had never truly left. He continued to order last-minute cast changes and performances of his ballets and even show up backstage at a show. One dancer, Ashley Boudour, said that he removed her at the 11th hour from the opening night cast of The Sleeping Beauty, a position she held for nearly a decade as retribution for publicly calling for a new day at the company. Contractually, as a living choreographer, he does have final approval for artistic decisions, including casting, but they typically yield to management's wishes. Martins hadn't done that, jarring Stafford and the other dancers. Even in the years to come, more information and frustrations have been unearthed in regards to the way Martins ran the New York City Ballet. Last year, Georgina Pascogin, an NYCB soloist, wrote a memoir of her account of ballet culture. The book talks about far more than just Martin's and also goes into detail about a surgery she had to remove fat from her thighs after extreme dieting didn't work. However, she does refer to Martin's as her psychological abuser and claims that he consistently gave her fat talks and made her fear for her job to get liposuction on her thighs to fix that fear. She also describes a fraternity of bad boys among the male dancers around Martin's and states that given the toxic male behavior she describes, it's quote, no surprise, I was almost fired for being too curvy, end quote. Now that we've talked about the potential source of this frat-like atmosphere, let's talk about those male dancers. After all, not long after the allegations about Martin surfaced, allegations about the male dancers and their inappropriate behavior did too. Later in 2018, about eight months after Martin's retired, a new scandal emerged. Charles W. Shave, chairman of the City Ballet Board, said in August that the company had received a letter alleging inappropriate communications made via personal text and email by three members of the company. Just three weeks before the fall season was due to begin, Chase Finlay, Amar Ramasar, and Zachary Katazaro, three principal male dancers, were suspended without pay. As September hit, details emerged when Alexandra Waterby filed a lawsuit against Chase Finlay as well as the New York City Ballet itself. The lawsuit claimed that NYCB had condoned, encouraged, fostered, and permitted an environment where its agents, servants, employees, donors, principals, and or others affiliated with it abused, degraded, and mistreated alcohol, drugs, and women. This fraternity-like atmosphere permeates the ballet and its dancers and emboldens them to disregard the law and violate the basic rights of women. Alexandra Waterby herself faced this mistreatment when about mid-May, 2018, she learned that Finlay, her boyfriend of around one year at this point, had been secretly recording and saving explicit photos in videos of her when she was nude or sleeping with him. Finlay was sending them to multiple other people associated with the NYCB as well, but Waterby claims that NYCB simply swept it under the rug. He wasn't the only one sending disturbing messages either. The lawsuit claims that one NYCB donor wrote to Finlay that quote, We should get like half a kilo and pour it all over the ABT girls and just violate them. I bet we could tie some of them up and abuse them like farm animals," end quote. Finlay allegedly responded, or like the sluts they are. Finlay and other principal dancers also allegedly discussed double teaming, a religious female corps member at NYCB and other abusive acts. Waterby also claimed to have proof that the pictures of her were sent to a pimp, she says, and says that drugs, alcohol, partying, destroyed hotel rooms, and sharing non-consensually explicit photos of women were common for Finlay and those like him. To say this was a bombshell for the dance community would be an understatement. Now, for many of us, when you picture the ballet, you might think of refinement, poise, grace, and things of that nature. Imagining a frat house atmosphere was not at the forefront of my mind when I began looking into abuse in the ballet industry. I think that's what can be so dangerous about communities that appear refined and well-mannered and things of that nature. They can hide some truly toxic secrets, and it's important to remember that they can be just as bad as the next place." As for Zachary and Amar, both of them sent and received photos from Finlay, hence their involvement with the case. After the suit was filed, NYCB denied any wrongdoing and said they were confident that there was no basis for the suit whatsoever. However, women continued to approach management and say that they wouldn't be comfortable dancing beside these men, especially considering how close partners might be during ballet, so they were fired. As an aside, while we're mainly focusing on ballet in the US today, this is not the only photo scandal to emerge in September, 2018 either. About this time, The Guardian wrote an article about a Royal Winnipeg ballet teacher who was accused of pressuring teenage pupils into naked photo shoots. Former students and primary plaintiff in the case, Sarah Doucette, claimed that she was only 16 or 17 when former instructor and photographer Bruce Monk took photos of her for her portfolio. After a little while, Monk suggested they move to a private office for headshots only to slowly pressure her into taking off her shirt. This class action suit was eventually settled for $10 million. Needless to say, the ballet world's beautiful exterior was being peeled off one layer at a time and many people were pretty horrified by what was underneath. Unfortunately for Waterbury, her case reached a very different conclusion than the one in Canada. Both Catazaro and Ramassar's terminations were reversed after an arbitrator ruled that while the company was justified in disciplining the two men, suspension was the appropriate punishment for their actions and termination was too severe. Ramassar returned to the stage, though Catasaro did not design to rejoin the company. Now, regardless if you believe that a suspension or a firing is a worthy offense for what happened here, I think that given the graphic and violent nature of some of the texts sent, I'd still feel incredibly uncomfortable dancing alongside either one of them if I were a ballerina. If the company was going to reinstate them, the least they could do is show how they intend to keep their dancers safe and make new rules on how to deal with this. But instead, they just said they were committed to a safe and respectful workplace. As nice as these flowery words are, without action, they're pretty meaningless. However, while debate swirled around how this was handled, the lawsuit against Finlay and NYCB moved forward and intensified in 2020 when Finlay alleged that Waterbury had abused him throughout their relationship, hitting him and unlawfully taking screenshots of his conversations on his computer. The screenshots that showed that he had been sharing explicit photos of her, by the way, 19 of Waterbury's 20 legal claims against NYCB and the men responsible for them were dismissed in late 2020 when as a Supreme Court in Manhattan found that NYCB and SAB were under no obligation to protect Waterbury since she wasn't their student at the time. As of writing this, that's been one of the most recent updates to the case. Waterbury has protested using the phrase, not your farm animal in reference to some of the disturbing messages unveiled during the case. With so many of the charges against Finlay dropped and given that everything against NYCB and SAB has been dismissed, I doubt we'll see much justice from this case. Still, between Waterbury's accusations, the horrible texts and all the allegations against Martins, 2018 was at the very least, a very revealing year for the ballet. And while you might hope that those within the ballet industry truly had their eyes opened, more victims have stepped forward in recent years, naming more powerful figures in ballet that have abused their power. In 2020, director of Alvin Alley, American Dance Theater, an iconic institution in the world of black performing arts according to CNN, Alvin Ailey himself was fired after the school investigated misconduct claims against him. He had engaged in inappropriate communications with adults enrolled in the school, the Ailey organization said in a statement. Four former students said that Ailey's behavior was far beyond inappropriate and said that he'd touched them and even sent a student an unwanted photo. Three claimed that when they rejected Ailey, they were cut from performances. And two former dancers said they complained years ago, but nothing was done. The allegations from these dancers spanned from 2003 to 2011. So this wasn't a recent change in behavior either, but years and years worth of misconduct gone unchecked. A high profile teacher with the company also allegedly sexually assaulted a 21 year old student, two decades his junior. When the student brought it to the school's directors, he'd been told he was making a big deal over the assault and it would hurt his chances to get a position in the company. While the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater is primarily about black performing arts, it isn't strictly about the ballet industry, but it does offer and feature ballet. This was yet another blow to ballet's reputation and about a year later, even more sexual assault allegations emerged. Now, before I continue on to discuss, please let me make this massive legal disclaimer. Everything we are about to mention in regards to the Buttons incident is alleged and subject to change. This case came out recently. It hasn't gone through the court system yet, so feel free to take it with a grain of salt if you wish. Moving forward, former Boston ballet star, Dusty Button, and her husband, Michelle Taylor Button, were accused of exploiting their power of position and influence in the dance world to sexually abuse young dancers across the country. This lawsuit became massive news in 2021 and rocked the ballet world once again, as those alleging this abuse had been underage at the time. The Buttons had been both well-known and prestigious figures within the ballet industry, Dusty had joined the Boston Ballet in 2012 and was promoted to principal rather quickly. She'd had multiple corporate sponsorships, including Red Bull, before she was fired in 2017. Her husband, Mitchell Taylor, was a dance instructor that taught at the Center Stage Dance Academy in Tampa, Florida from 2006 to 2010. According to the Boston Globe, as early as 2010, parents at the dance studio heard rumors about him engaging in sexual relationships with minors, and he left to be with Dusty. Mitchell used to go by Mitchell Moore or Taylor Moore, but seemingly in an attempt to get a fresh start, he took Dusty's last name when they married. What made this case especially disturbing for many was the fact that the couple acted separately and together to abuse children. Back in 2010, before Taylor left the studio, a dancer named Gina Menichino started taking his classes. She alleges that Taylor took a special interest in her and sexually assaulted her there. Another woman named Jane Doe 100 in the lawsuit claimed that she was a minor when in 2014, she was invited to the Button's Somerville apartment. Taylor and Dusty Button allegedly forced Jane to drink alcohol, then Taylor raped her while Dusty restrained Jane in a room full of firearms. The complaint also stated that Dusty had a phone in her hand recording the assault and a gun. Since then, Jane Doe 100 has abandoned her dance career and has experienced panic attacks, suicidal thoughts, and of course, an eating disorder. Years later in 2017, Sage Humphrey is a fan of Dusty's, went to the couple's apartment to watch a movie with them. According to Sage, Dusty pretended to fall asleep and her husband sexually assaulted her. The abuse continued as the couple allegedly manipulated Sage, insisting she stay at their apartment regularly. They paid for her meals and personal expenses, eventually insisting she lived there full time and slowly began cutting Sage off from the rest of the world. The lawsuit stated that if Sage ever attempted to distance herself or disobey the buttons, they would interfere and threaten to revoke her financial support and sabotage her career. As Humphreys was 23 years old when this news broke, this means she was still a teenager when the abuse took place. They had control over my phone and passwords to my Instagram, my email. They had complete control over me. If I wanted to do anything, I had to ask them first. Sage stated. Not only did a pattern of sexual assault and control emerge, but according to the suit, there were also violent sexual acts she did not consent to either. Allegedly, Dusty held her down while Taylor had sex with her. And by 2017, it got so bad that Sage was able to receive abuse protection orders against the couple. She tried to report her experiences to the police in 2018 as well, but they told her they found insufficient evidence to pursue a criminal case. Although Humphreys was not able to pursue criminal action, she was the first to drop this new bombshell on the ballet community. When Jade Joe 100 stepped forward shortly afterwards, it seemed to unveil a pattern of manipulation and abuse from the couple. Taylor seemingly had a history of abuse and sexual assault and his new wife, Dusty, was allegedly all too willing to either turn a blind eye or actively engage in or enable this behavior. As this case is still so new and unfolding as we speak, this again is all alleged. The Buttons did attempt to have many of the claims thrown away because of the statute of limitations, though the dancers' attorneys have disputed this. As of writing, the most recent articles surrounding the topic are in late September and early October. So we'll have to wait and see what happens, if anything, though it seems likely that many will remember this as yet another instance of the ballet having a dark, ugly side. So what's next? These are just a few recent instances of the abuse that takes place in ballet. And there are far more aspects to the industry that have also been brought into question. One French dancer, Chloe Lopez Gomez, said she was pressured to wear white skin makeup, mocked for her hair color, and criticized the lack of access racial minorities have to this classical art form. Misty Copeland, the first black ballerina to be principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater, has stated that not much has changed within ballet since her mentor, Raven Wilkinson, was dancing in the 50s. Acid attacks and allegations of sexual exploitation have plagued Russia's ballet, where complaints of ballet dancers being dangerously overworked is commonplace. One of Germany's most prominent ballet schools has been accused of fostering a culture of fear for using the Russian method of teaching ballet. This training may ensure that dancers are physically fit, but according to my sources, the Berlin, Germany-based school has also been exceedingly focused on image as well, leading to anorexia and bulimia among the students. In London, a former English National Ballet principal dancer used power and prestige to sexually abuse young dance students in his care, the Guardian wrote in April of last year. sen Chang was charged with 12 counts of sexual assault and two counts of assault by penetration against a young woman 16 years or older. He'd massage his students' thighs and intimate areas, seemingly under the guise of it being a sports massage. These assaults allegedly took place in late 2009 to early 2016. So why is the ballet fraught with sexual assault, body shaming, eating disorders, and a whole host of other issues? In my opinion, it's what we hearkened back to earlier. It's this cult of thinness and the cult of sacrifice being normalized. When it comes to art forms, there is a lot of competition. Professional dancers give so much to their craft and overworking yourself is seen as normal or respectable. Obviously, I'm not a dancer. A professional dancer would be able to testify to that far better than I can. And this is just my opinion. And as an aside, this also mimics the sexual assaults we've seen against young gymnasts with similar experiences and excuses of a sports massage being used to hurt these young gymnasts. A New York Times article from 2016 also pointed out that while many ballerinas are women, they continue to be underrepresented as choreographers and in positions of power. Even when the Royal Ballet in London has presented works by female choreographers, they've been at smaller theaters as opposed to their main stage. Women are often teachers at ballet schools, coaches at ballet companies, and they tend to outnumber men. Many women have become artistic directors in recent years, yet the gender gap within the industry has been subject to debate too. Ballet may be a classical art form, but if it continually leads to mistreatment and harm, then it too needs to evolve. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you for spending some of your time here with me today to learn about the ballet industry and some of the abuses behind it. I appreciate your time and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.